This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This episode features discussion of human and animal sacrifice, bestiality, supernatural evil, and violent conflict. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Kiva looked out with concern upon the misty road in front of her home. Weeks of preparation led to this night. The farmers had worked quickly in the fields so that the harvest was complete. The animals had all been brought in and shuttered safely in their barns so they wouldn't be vulnerable. And Kiva herself made sure to get all of her cleaning and clothes washing done earlier in the week. She couldn't risk doing chores tonight. She jumped at the sound of someone pounding on her door. Clutching her robe, she moved to answer it. Standing on the other side was a small figure clothed in a white gown with a dripping, glistening face. It held a sack in its tiny hands. Kiva gagged, held her breath, then asked, Yes? The figure cried out, A soul, a soul! A soul cake. Moving quickly, Kiva reached over to her stove for a small baked good and dropped it in the ghoul's sack. The figure giggled, said, Thank you, miss, then scampered off down the road. Kiva quickly shut the door and locked it behind her. That was a close one. For tonight was the most dangerous of all nights. The night when the spirit world crossed over with the earthly plane. It was the dying of the year. It was the bane of kings. It was Samhain. It was Halloween. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our third episode on the dark side of holidays. 
The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of The Dark Side Of, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Today, we're examining the ancient festival of Samhain, the Celtic precursor to Halloween. Though little is known about this dark and mysterious holiday, it is often associated with two things. Druids, those robed priests of European antiquity, and human sacrifice, the taking of a life to appease the gods. Was the first Halloween filled with chanting priests and bloody altars? In the modern-day United States, Halloween has surged in popularity over the years. Costume parties, horror movie watching, and haunted mazes all mark the approach of October 31st. But ask most Americans, and they have only a faint idea as to the holiday's origins. They might say it used to be called All Saints' Day, whatever that is. They might know it's the time when spirits walk the earth. They might even know that the traditions come from Ireland. But beyond that, most people have little else to say. In fact, much of the modern aesthetic of Halloween is not that old, nor that foreign. Instead, most of the now-familiar pageantry originated with 66-year-old Elizabeth Krebs of Hiawatha, Kansas. Dreading the yearly mayhem that young people caused on October 31st, in 1914, she decided to redirect their energies. She organized a costume parade and put together a festival complete with pumpkin carving and bobbing for apples. As the story goes, the children were all so worn out by the night's end that they had no energy left to pull pranks or destroy her garden as in previous years. These traditions then spread to the rest of the United States, and the holiday grew from there. But behind this folksy tale lies a darker truth. After all, why were the children acting out in the first place? Could it have been because they knew of a more ancient custom? One in which the night of the 31st was meant to be filled with mischief? What was this sinister tradition now hidden behind a layer of saccharine Americana? In 1977, National Geographic writer Merle Severy wrote that behind such Halloween games as bobbing for apples, masks and mischief, the jack-o'-lanterns and food offerings lurked the fear of malevolent spirits and the rights to manipulate them. He attributed this information to the ancient Irish Dinshankas, a collection of historical poems penned as early as 500 CE. 
The tome names the original Halloween festival Samhain and claimed that it was a night where, according to Severi, quote, firstborn children were sacrificed before a great idol to ensure fertility of cattle and crops. Samhain Eve was a night of dread and danger. At this juncture of the old year and the new, our world and the other world opened up to each other. The sacrificing of firstborns and the raising of spirits certainly sounds less fun than dancing to Monster Mash. However, 500 CE is somewhat removed from the even more ancient centuries when these events took place. To find a first-hand historical reference to these rituals, we must go back even further to 58 BCE and the Gallic Wars. Around this time, Julius Caesar completed his conquest of the known world by fighting the tribes of Gaul. The Gauls can be grouped in with the Celts, which is a massive ethnic group that is thought to have originated in modern-day Turkey. The Celts spread out over thousands of years and settled most of Europe, including the British Isles. As Caesar looked to make these lands his own, he observed the customs of the Celtic people, and though he didn't make it to ancient Ireland, the Gauls he fought shared a common culture with the islanders. Based on his writings, we can guess what sort of rituals were being performed on Samhain, the ancient Irish Halloween festival. Caesar wrote that, the whole nation of the Gauls is greatly devoted to ritual observances, and for that reason, those who are smitten with the more grievous maladies and who are engaged in the perils of battle either sacrifice human victims or vow so to do, employing the Druids as ministers for such sacrifices. Here we find reference to both human sacrifice and the Druids cited as ministers of the Celtic faith. In the modern day, these ancient priests are often depicted as hippies making animal sacrifices at Stonehenge, or as mystical potion makers and spell casters in various role-playing and video games. But according to ancient sources, they were far from mystical hippies. Roman historian Tacitus wrote around 100 CE that it was their religion to drench their altars in the blood of prisoners and consult their gods by means of human entrails. And an ancient Greek historian, Siculus, wrote that when Druids attempt divination upon important matters, they practice a strange and incredible custom, for they kill a man by a knife stab above his midriff. After the sacrificial victim fell dead, they foretell the future by the convulsions of his limbs and the pouring of his blood. Caesar himself wrote of an especially horrendous ritual in which, quote, Druids use figures of immense size whose limbs, woven out of twigs, they fill with living men and set on fire, and the men perish in a sheet of flame. They believe that the execution of those who have been caught in the act of theft or robbery or some crime is more pleasing to the immortal gods. But when the supply of such fails, they resort to the execution even of the innocent. If you're picturing Nicolas Cage on fire and screaming about bees, then you're on the right track. 
This is indeed the first known reference to the idea of the wicker man, an ancient sacrificial custom in which a large wooden effigy is filled with living people and then set aflame. Clearly, the ritual customs of the Druids, and therefore Samhain, were barbaric beyond measure. This October 31st, it might be hard to enjoy your bag of mini Snickers bars and Almond Joys as you picture the earliest celebrants of Halloween being burnt alive or gutted on an altar. Just to thoroughly ruin your fun, here is one final anecdote from Geraldus Cambrensis, a Welsh historian who in 1187 CE wrote of an even more disturbing Celtic custom. Quote, there is a certain tribe which is wont to install a king over itself by an excessively savage and abominable ritual. A white mare is brought into their midst. Thereupon, he who is to be elevated steps forward in beastly fashion and exhibits his bestiality. Cambrensis continued, Right thereafter, the mare is killed and boiled piecemeal in water and in the same water a bath is prepared for him. He gets into the bath and eats of the flesh that is brought to him, with his people standing around and sharing it with him. He also imbibes the broth in which he is bathed, not from any vessel, nor with his hand, but only with his mouth. When this is done right according to such unrighteous ritual, his rule and sovereignty are consecrated. With this in mind, it's possible that Samhain was not just a festival of human sacrifice, but one of bestiality and blood consumption. That's certainly more frightening than any scary movie. Except, according to Religious Studies PhD candidate Andrew Mark Henry, there is no concrete evidence for the existence of Druids. We have no first-hand written sources nor any archaeological findings. The entire concept of Druids comes exclusively from ancient Greek, Roman, and later Christian historians, such as Siculus, Strabo, Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, and Cambrensis. All of these sources may have presented a version of Celtic rituals that is intentionally deceptive. Cambrensis, for example, was a Christian and Welsh historian who had a vested interest in portraying the Celts as barbarians. He wished to frame the impending Norman invasion as a liberation rather than a conquest. Celtic mythology did include a horse goddess, Ipona, and Cambrensis perhaps was drawing on that to level his claims of bestiality. Similarly, the Roman invasion of Gaul centuries earlier relied on propaganda to appease the various politicians, generals, and priests of the empire. If Caesar could depict himself as the civilized answer to the endless, untamed wilds of Europe, then he would continue to receive undying support. Andrew Mark Henry suggests that human sacrifice in particular was actually a common way to insult the enemy in ancient times. In an empire filled with slavery, sex with minors, and gladiatorial bouts, human sacrifice was perhaps the one area where Romans drew the line. 
Outside of these biased texts, the only other evidence for human sacrifice in ancient Europe are the bog bodies uncovered in various peat swamps throughout the north. These mummified remains are immaculately preserved by the lack of microorganisms in peat biomes. The bodies are often naked, hogtied, gagged, and have their throats slit. But being that they are thousands of years old, there is no way to know more about them. Were they sacrificed or simply robbed and murdered on the road? One possible piece of evidence for Samhain human sacrifice exists in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The etymology for the word bonfire was long assumed to be from the French bon and the English fire, basically meaning a triumphant fire. But Merriam-Webster points out that the actual origin of the word is Latin and literally means a fire of bones. Was there some ancient custom of burning humans that has since been lost to time? Ultimately, we can't say. However, even if all the Roman and later Christian historians were making up stories about human sacrifice on Samhain, there are texts from the actual region that reveal other traditions from the festival. And though they aren't quite as disturbing as a wicker man or horse abuse, they are every bit as strange. Next, we learn about the monsters of ancient Halloween and the customs that had to be followed to ensure survival. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. When it comes to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, many imagine druids in robes sacrificing people to the gods. As we've established, the truth isn't quite that violent. But this ancient festival was still far darker than the Halloween we're used to today. While modern Halloween has Freddy, Jason, and Michael Myers, Samhain, the ancient Celtic Halloween, had a demon Puka, a disease-bringing corpse prisoner, and Stingy Jack with his hollow turnip head. But before we get into these denizens of the night, we need to establish what Samhain actually was, or at least what we know about it. 
Most knowledge of the ancient festival comes from the Kalini calendar, an ancient Celtic text that described how their civilization viewed the passing of the year. Samhain was possibly a three-day event from about October 31st to November 2nd. While many pagan holidays tend to fall on either the fall equinox in September or the winter solstice in December, the Celts chose the halfway point between these two solar events to observe Samhain. The exact reason for this is unknown, though many ancient Celtic texts suggest that this was seen as the point at which the light died and a new year began. It was thus their most important holiday, as they saw this as a time to connect with the gods and receive guidance for a prosperous new year. This festival was considered so important that attendance was mandatory for literally every resident of Ireland. Today, some prefer to spend Halloween inside watching a scary movie. But during Samhain, anyone who did this would have been considered cursed. Those who skipped the festival were fined, possibly even executed. What is certain is that combat or fighting of any kind was punishable by death during the three days of celebration. This does perhaps echo the Roman claims of human sacrifice. Were Samhain rule-breakers simply killed? Or were they sacrificed to the gods in an attempt to atone for their offense and prevent the curse from passing to the rest of the kingdom? And what was so sacred about Samhain that all were forced to join in? For that, we may have an answer. According to author Jean Mercalli, many Celtic festivals centered around the goddess Maeve, whose name literally means drunkenness. While getting drunk on Halloween nowadays is just a traditional bit of fun, in ancient Ireland, it was seen as a sacred duty. Overeating and drinking allowed the Celts to enter into a state of in-between, meaning that on this dark night on which the spirit world crossed over with the human world, someone who was drunk and full might be able to commune with the spirits and even the gods themselves. Marcali also writes that Maeve's name is derived from the same root as the word middle, which further echoes the degree to which drunkenness was associated with crossing over into another world. But if this sounds like fun and games no different than a particularly debaucherous Halloween party, it was actually much, much darker. For one, Maeve was just one aspect of the original goddess Danu who represented the earth itself. And though Danu was the mother of all, she was also sometimes malevolent and violent. The Celts were attempting to cozy up to the bosom of a cosmic being that was known for being unpredictable. And in order to achieve this, they conducted a ritual more terrifying than any haunted theme park maze. It was known as Tarvish. Samhain was not just an observance at the end of the year, but a time when the men of the kingdom discussed politics and even selected a new king. It's unknown if they did this every year, but Celtic mythology makes it clear that any perceived flaw in a ruler meant he was unworthy. For example, in the myth of Luke, the god of skillfulness, 
The king Nuada was replaced after he lost his hand in battle. That minor injury alone was enough to make him unworthy in the Celts' eyes. Ancient manuscripts show that part of the Tarvesh ritual to select a new king was to extinguish all of the flames in Ireland on the night of the 31st. Luke, seen as the ultimate king, was a god of light and enlightenment. By extinguishing all the flames, the Celts showed that they were ready to be enlightened once more, ready to be shown the way to their new ruler. This was a world without electricity, so it would have left the entire country pitch black. Imagine the sheer terror of being told that tonight there are spirits all around you. And even worse, you have to avoid them while making your way in complete darkness. It was like a haunted house that lasted all night and spanned the whole globe. Jean Marcale added, Sawin could bring something new only if it was preceded by dissolution or chaos. Did the old ruler simply step down, or did something more sinister befall them? No one knows for sure, but what is known is that in order to choose this new ruler, a white bull was brought forward and slaughtered. This represented the bull that the mythological hero Nera brought from the other world. One warrior from the kingdom was chosen to eat as much as they could of the bull's meat and drink a broth made from its innards. But this warrior wasn't being tested to see if he was ready to be king. Instead, he was being prepared to choose the next king. Once the warrior reached the Mave state, the in-between state where they could channel spirits and gods, they were wrapped in the bull's skin. This sounds far less pleasant than wrapping yourself in a sheet and trick-or-treating as a ghost. As the chosen ones slept, the other members of the group chanted over them, essentially casting a spell that would help them in their quest to the other side. Some sources claim that the individual in the bullskin was actually a druid, and thus one of the most powerful members of Celtic society. If druids were truly not only priests and healers, but also those with a connection to the divine, then they were the real leaders of Celtic society. How sovereign was a king whose very rule hinged on the visions of a druid? However, the position of selecting the king was not without its dangers. One source claims that if the person in the bullskin woke up and was thought to be lying about Luke's message, then they were put to death. But if the ritual was successful, then the person awoke and shared visions that either explicitly or implicitly told the Celts who their new king should be. For example, they might see a well-known warrior sitting on a throne, or more cryptically, they might see an eagle snatching up a snake in its talons and then infer that this represented a warrior with an eagle as his sigil, or who was known for killing snakes, or for killing someone who was represented by a snake. It was clearly not as cut and dry as voting for who had the best costume in the costume contest. Regardless, whenever the king was decided upon, it was as if Luke had given them light again. Flames were rekindled and festivities resumed. 
Once again, this is a Samhain tradition that does echo some claims of a biased historian. Cambrensis's claim of Celtic bestiality with a white horse is not so far off from the ritual of the white bull. But is this the case of the historian twisting a ritual to be even more shocking? Or were the Celts really so dark as to force their new kings to mate with a horse? Jean-Marc Collet provides some clarity. He writes that, anthropologically speaking, Cambrensis's white horse ritual makes no sense. Samhain was about death and rebirth. Having a king impregnate a mare, then kill her and bathe in her blood, has no meaning. He has just destroyed the thing he sought to create. Marcale writes that in cultures with actual documented bestiality, it's more common for a woman to mate with a male animal, as she is thus becoming symbolically impregnated by nature and will give birth to a stronger future. The bull ritual is more in line with Celtic beliefs, as it shows the obsession with reaching the other world and represents rebirth as the person emerges from the bullskin. And so Druid Halloween rituals were likely not as dark as rumors suggest, though they were still plenty dark compared to today's customs. And some of the tamer traditions have endured, like wearing costumes and carving jack-o'-lanterns. According to Celtic belief, the world was absolutely teeming with spirits on the night of Samhain. There were certain famous spirits that were the horror icons of ancient Celtic times. Instead of serial killers and little girls crawling out of TVs, they had beasts and spirits rooted in mythology. In many of these creatures' stories, we find the dark roots of our modern traditions. The following story from the Middle Ages serves as an excellent example. Stingy Jack was a Celtic man who had a drink with the devil one night. When the devil turned into a gold coin so they could pay for their drinks, Jack instead pocketed the devil coin, surrounding it with silver. The devil was allergic to silver and thus could not turn back. Jack offered to free him, but on the condition that the devil would not harm him or try to collect his soul. To this, the devil agreed. Eventually, Jack died, but as he found himself at the pearly gates to heaven, he learned that God would not allow him inside. Jack had consorted with the devil and was stingy besides. Such a person was not worthy of eternal salvation. But in hell, the devil wanted to stay true to his word. He wouldn't let Jack enter either. It pleased him that Jack now had nowhere to go. Jack was stuck in the in-between world, forever doomed to walk and walk with nowhere to go. The devil gave him hot coal to light his way. Jack then carved out a turnip and placed the coal inside using the turnip as a lantern, perhaps to scare off any spirits in the other world. Some versions of the tale even depict Jack replacing his head with the lantern. Celts thus carved out their own turnip heads to ward away the spirits on Samhain, or even to ward away Stingy Jack himself. Some have noted that to a modern audience, these carved turnips look not unlike human skin, gray and stretched out into the shape of a face. 
which is perhaps why today we carve pumpkins instead, which have a much more festive orange color. Next time you see a jack-o'-lantern, try not to think of the disembodied head of Stingy Jack. Another terrible creature that roamed the earth on Samhain was the puka, an otherworldly shapeshifter resembling a black goat, rabbit, or horse. These were truly frightening beasts as they targeted lonely travelers on the road. They could even take the shape of a man, speaking in a low, guttural voice. Imagine walking on a dark road and encountering a stranger. He tries to speak to you, but it's almost as if the very concept of speaking is alien to him. This is because he isn't human at all. But you realize this too late. The puka transforms into a beast and devours you. This legend may reflect why the Celts saw it as so important to be together on the night of Samhain. There was strength in numbers. November 1st was actually known as Puka Day, and any grains left in the fields were considered abandoned to the shapeshifters. Similarly, livestock was brought inside so that they or another spirit wouldn't make off with it. And here we find the origins of another Halloween tradition. More ornery members of the kingdom might have felt empowered to cause mischief on the night of November 1st because anything they did would be blamed on a puka, though mischief might include something as serious as stealing a horse. Hundreds of years later, the children of Hiawatha, Kansas, felt empowered to destroy Elizabeth Krebs' garden for similar reasons, though they didn't know to what culture they owed this once-a-year freedom. And their pranks were far tamer than those of the ancient Celts. Their costumes were also much less disturbing. <laughs> ancient Celtic costumes would have seemed truly frightening to a modern witness. If someone wanted extra protection warding off the spirits that walked the earth on Samhain, then they could don a robe or wrap themselves in straw. This costume made them look like a spirit, and so they would be left alone. Jean Marcale writes that across the water in Scotland, this tradition was modified slightly, since the Scots were, quote-unquote, civilized sooner by various invading Romans and Normans. Therefore, they didn't give in to superstition quite as completely as the Irish and left the costumes exclusively to the children rather than the adults. These costumes included veils, masks, and even fat-based face paint. Soon the children went door to door asking for an offering to appease the spirits. According to author Peter Hampson Ditchfield, by the Middle Ages, this was known as souling and the children were called solars, which sounds a lot creepier than just trick-or-treaters. Clearly, Halloween owes much to the festival of Samhain, and clearly it used to be a far darker holiday. But where did the Celts come up with such varied traditions? What beliefs led them to such an intense annual observance? To answer that question, we have to go back to the dawn of time itself and to the very first Samhain, the first Halloween. Next, we'll learn about the ancient stories that inspired Samhain.
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Now back to the story. Many of our modern Halloween traditions, such as pumpkin carving, trick-or-treating, and costume wearing, came from the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. But the Celts got their traditions from an even older source. Celtic mythology tells of multiple heroes who achieved great victories and suffered crushing defeats during Samhain. These are the origin tales of Halloween. One of the oldest of these stories is the adventures of Nira. We mentioned that the sacrificial white bull from the ritual of Tarvesh was inspired by this tale. Now we'll see why. The story goes that on a dark and stormy Samhain night, Nira, a warrior, was held up in the castle of King Olyil and Queen Maeve. They all sat in the great hall, trying to keep warm, hoping to remain safe from the spirits that roamed the countryside. King Olyil, apparently a somewhat careless sort, thought it would be amusing to challenge his warriors to a dare. He asked if any of them were brave enough to travel alone to the castle's dungeon, to tie a twig around the toe of one of the prisoners. If the warrior returned, the king would grant them his golden sword. Though traveling alone through the dark corridors of the castle was dangerous during Samhain, Nera was never one to back down from a challenge. He volunteered, and his fellow warriors patted him on the back as he headed to the dungeon. The doors were quickly barricaded behind him. Nira gulped at the darkness of the corridor, lit only by the occasional flash of lightning from outside. Nevertheless, he proceeded, keeping his steps quiet and his arms close to his sides. He didn't want to risk bumping into a traveling spirit. Occasional hisses and high-pitched laughs emerged from the darkness. Glowing eyes appeared in the corners of the black ceiling. But Nira soldiered on, and eventually he arrived at the dungeon. It was even darker inside than it was in the corridor. As Nira walked forward, his face collided with a cold, wet appendage. Reeling back, he realized that he had found a prisoner, though he looked more like a ghoul. The man was chained by his wrists and dangling from a torture rack. His skin was ashen gray, and each of his ribs was visible beneath. Trying not to stare, Nero went about his task. He took a small twig from his cloak 
and tried to tie it around the prisoner's toe. As he did so, he could hear spirits all around him. They taunted him, just waiting for him to run blindly into one of them so they might attack. But he persevered, and eventually, he got the twig to stay put. He then jumped back as the prisoner let out a groan. The wretched creature looked down at him for the first time. Rather than being upset, the ghoulish man was impressed. He revealed that he was, in fact, dead. But he remained in his body until Sawin was over and the annual colliding of the realms came to an end. He told Nera that he was thirsty. If Nera took him for a drink, then he would protect him from the spirits. The young warrior agreed. Releasing the corpse from his shackles, he slung the decaying man around his shoulders, and the two headed up and out of the dungeon and into the stormy Samhain night. Outside, the sky crackled with lightning, though the rain had ceased. They soon came upon a homestead, but the corpse did not want to drink there. He saw that they had an ember of their fire still burning. This meant they honored the ways of the gods. They were holy. So they moved on to the next homestead. But this too was unacceptable to the corpse. This home had a puddle of old water next to it. Again, this family was holy. They honored the ways of the gods and emptied their water bucket each night before going to bed. Finally, they arrived at a third homestead, which the corpse found adequate. Inside, a family was sound asleep. Nera took the corpse to their water bucket, and he drank. But he kept the water in his mouth and moved to the sleeping family. Then he spit the water in the face of each person. Nira watched in horror as their veins turned green, their features twisted, and their hair fell out of their heads. They were reduced to corpses themselves, and their spirits sat up and went outside to roam with the others. Already we can see precursors to Sawin traditions in this story. The three homesteads each exhibited habits that the Celts considered either holy or unholy. Leaving your fire roaring in the night was a good way to burn your house down. But reducing it to just embers meant you could easily rekindle it in the morning. This was the beginning of the tradition of extinguishing flames on Sawin night. The second home had dumped their water outside before going to bed. This too was considered holy, as it prevented disease by eliminating standing water. The family that failed to do this, the third family, was visited by a spirit, the corpse, and died of the disease. But the story doesn't end there. Nera and the corpse returned to the castle, but once they arrived, Nera was shocked to see that it had been raised to the ground. An army of Aishi elves had come from the other world and decapitated all of the other warriors, as well as the king and queen. The elves were a fearsome sight. Their pale skin and hair, long slender frames, and twisted armor glowed with each flash of lightning. As Nira watched, they turned back to the fairy mound from which they came and disappeared into the other world. 
Seeing no other recourse, Nera dropped the corpse and went after them. He traveled through twisting dark tunnels lit by shadows and flames of the elves. Soon, he arrived in their realm and was stunned to find not a realm of horrors, but one of eternal summer. The sky shone bright, the grass was green, and flowers bloomed everywhere. The king of the Ai Shi was impressed by Nera's courage. He was not executed, but instead given a light punishment. Every day, he had to collect the king's firewood from a nearby elf woman. But the king did not expect Nera and the elf woman to fall in love. Years passed, and eventually the two were married and expecting their first child. Nera's new love explained to him that time lost all meaning in the other world. Though it had seemed like years to him here, time had actually moved backward by a few minutes in the realm above. If he traveled back up through the tunnels, he would find that the castle had not yet been attacked. He could urge the king and queen to attack the elves first and save themselves. Nera had to try, but he swore to return for his wife and their unborn child. He crashed into the Grand Hall, explaining his story to King Alyil and Queen Maeve. They rallied the warriors, and together they marched for the other world. The queen had pity on Nera and sent him ahead to save his family. The humans successfully invaded the fairy mound, killing the king and stealing his crown. Nera brought his new family back to the castle, as well as the fairy king's prized white bull. It was a reward for his bravery, and for generations to come, it was a symbol of a worthy king. Thus, every Samhain, the Celts sacrificed a white bull to the gods and used its meat, innards, and skin to help them decide who should be their new ruler. Even in this ancient tale, the Halloween aesthetic is clear. A haunted castle, a murderous corpse, a strange otherworld. Though it is all perhaps much darker, these stories color Sawin traditions, even if we don't realize it. The 1973 horror film The Wicker Man and its 2006 remake both traffic in extreme versions of ancient Celtic rituals, as does the recent Midsummer. In Netflix's Bird Box, a puka is referenced as the possible identity of the story's monster. The key difference is that for us, these are just tales. We enjoy the rush they give us, nothing more. We wear costumes, carve pumpkins, and trick-or-treat door-to-door, all for fun. But for the ancient practitioners of Samhain, the night of October 31st was no laughing matter. It was a dangerous night full of spirits and creatures that preyed on those who didn't follow the proper customs. And it was a pivotal moment for the kingdom, as important matters such as the selection of a new king were decided. If the warriors failed to celebrate properly, allowing them to travel the other world as Nera had, then the whole kingdom could be lost. Though the Roman rumors of human sacrifice and bestiality were likely just that, we think this tense festival of darkness and light, bullskins and turnip-headed men, was already plenty dark enough. 
In later centuries, the arrival of Catholicism in Ireland led to the toning down of these traditions, and the Church instead encouraged the celebration of dead saints. Samhain became a trinity of Christian holidays, All Saints' Eve, All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day. The language morphed and evolved, and All Saints' Eve became the Holy Evening, the Hallowed Eve, Halloween. Despite this Christianization, the Irish maintained their independent traditions and carried them to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. As the decades passed, turnips became pumpkins, white robes and straw outfits became sexy bunny and Spider-Man costumes, and soul cakes became miniature candy bars. And yet, in some ways, Halloween carries on the essential theme of Samhain. Despite having a much more secular culture than the Celts, on Halloween, Americans experiment with reaching out to the other world. For just one night, we open ourselves up to the possibility of the supernatural, of vampires, werewolves, witches, and ghosts. We gorge ourselves on candy, drink more than we probably should, and put on music and movies that conjure the otherworldly mood. Perhaps for some, these traditions still bring us closer to the spirits, gods, and goddesses of Celtic lore. Since white bulls are in short supply these days, instead, find yourself an orange candle. Light it at midnight and stare into its flame until sunrise. You might see your future. You might experience good luck for the rest of the year. Or you might see an ancient druid staring back at you ready to make you his next sacrifice to the gods. Happy Samhain. Happy Halloween. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of holidays by delving into trick-or-treating and the possibility that someone tampered with your child's Halloween candy. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Greg Castro and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.